Welcome to Blanco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of this podcast, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Uh, December, uh, December 8th, 2022, a uh, couple updates to talk about. Uh, the first being uh, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, or TILs. This is a um, an old uh, an old topic that I thought, um, or an old idea that I was, you know, kind of skeptical would ever make it into the mainstream. And there is a publication in in this week's New England Journal of Medicine, tumor, tumor infiltrating lymphocyte therapy or ipilimumab in advanced melanoma. Uh, they call it a phase three study. It's more of a glorified phase two study. Um, and it seems that we're on the way to TILS entering practice in the near future, I would say. Uh, we'll talk more about this study, but a, a little history on this. This goes. The history of this goes back to the 80s. There's a publication by, uh, by Stephen Rosenberg from the NCI in New England Medicine in, in 1988 on this, another one in 1994. So, you know, this is, a, you know, 34 or more years old, and we're just now seeing, you know, a, a a comparison study here. I know that here locally, um, I was in um, some meeting with some folks from around here, including some, some folks at the College of Medicine, one of whom talked about uh, a drug company that was working on this and it was really excited. said, this is going to cure breast cancer. Um, uh, and maybe it will in the future, but it's taken a long time to get to the point that there's something uh, worth having a podcast about, I would say. Tumor, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. It, it makes sense that this is in melanoma, one of the most immunogenic malignancies that we have. So let me go through let me go through this paper, and then we've got some smaller updates to talk about as well. So, you know, these are tumor infiltrating lymphocytes are a lot what it sounds like. You have to take tumor out of the body, a metastasectomy, and then you take those lymphocytes in the tumor. Um, that, and it's a polyclonal population. You're not selecting for one clone necessarily. You're taking all these lymphocytes in the tumor, some of which may be CD4, CD8 positive, some might be T-regulator cells. Um, you take those and then you, uh, you expand the population ex vivo and then you give it back to the people, all right? And in the course of this research, they've figured that when you give it back, you give you some IL-2, something you're looking to, that's the, the gasoline that makes T cells go. So you give some IL-2 to expand that population inside the body. And before doing that, you give some lymphocyte-depleting chemotherapy, cyclophosphamide, fludarabine, similar to what you do for CAR-T and things like that. All right. So that's the basic idea here is you take T-cells that are already at least at the battlefield, right? They're already at the front line. How effective they are, you don't really know when you take it out. They're not perfectly effective. Otherwise, the tumor would be gone, right? So they need a little help, and that is the and part of the help is well, let's just get more soldiers to the front line. Let's expand this T cell population, this lymphocyte population outside the body, and then we give it back. We give some help with some IL two, all right. Um, and the lymphocyte depleting chemo is to to probably prevent any you know native T regulatory cells from tamping down that population, which maybe is what's preventing them. Maybe some some uh, T cell exhaustion has occurred at the site here. Okay. Now this is a study from uh, from Europe. These are, are, are Dutch and Danish researchers. Uh, or, or this is done at a Dutch hospital and a Danish hospital, mostly a Dutch hospital in the Netherlands. We'll we'll get to the patients. It's a, a relatively small study, but a, a couple interesting inclusion criteria. You had to have 
uh, one or more lesions that you could cut out, right? And that you could find tumoral infiltrating lymphocytes. And then you had to have enough disease left over. Because if you're gonna look for a response, if you only have one side of metastatic disease and you do a complete metastasectomy, you can't monitor the response to see if the tumor shrinks. You can monitor progression-free survival, overall survival. But so these folks had multiple sites of disease for the most part, okay? ECOG performance had a zero one, that's pretty standard. But an LDH that was not more than two times the upper limit of normal. Um, so there, something that tells me, and I, I haven't had a chance to do enough research, that there's something in the Till's uh, research canon that says the higher the LDH, the poorer the response, because they, they, that is an explicit inclusion criteria, or really an exclusion criteria, and they stratify by normal LDH or one to two times upper limit of normal for LDH. Now, these patients, you saw in the title that it was comparing Till's to ipilimumab, and you're like, well, we don't use ipilimumab up front for melanoma. Most of these folks had prior treatment for their metastatic melanoma. And yes, most of them had uh, PD-1-directed therapy. So so like uh, in the total group, one in four had adjuvant PD-1 therapy, so recurrence after adjuvant therapy. And about 60% had first-line PD-1 therapy for metastatic disease. So, you know, most of these folks had received an ipil or a nivolumab or a pembrolizumab. And we don't have great options after those folks, right? Now, about half the patients in here were BRAF mutated. They don't say whether or not they got TKIs, but I have to assume that they did. Maybe it's an assumption I should not make. Um, so most of these are pre-treated folks um, who don't have a great option. Sure, ipilimumab is a reasonable option, um, but um, always could be looking for, for something better. So that is, that is what's happening here, right? And we have 84 patients in each group. It's a relatively small study, right? For a phase three study, less than 200 folks, uh, I'd say that's a pretty small study. Um, and the reason I say it's maybe, I have trouble saying it's a phase three study. They say it's a phase three study. Phase three study should say we're going to beat the standard of care. Sure, you could say it beats standard of care. I'm not going to argue that. But to beat it, you got to power it for overall survival. Prime, primary endpoint here is progression-free survival. With this small number of patients, it'll be hard to show an overall survival benefit unless it's a huge uh, effect size here. All right. So when we look at our uh, oh. Um, I should not minimize the, um, the disparity in amount of treatment that you're getting. Four doses of ipilimumab, three mix per kick, which is the standard uh, original dose of ipilimumab that was published in NEJM and now 12 years ago in 2010. The TILS group, they're getting um, 60 milligrams per kg of cyclophosphamide for two doses, and then 25 per meter squared of fludarabine for five days. So they're getting this non-myeloablative but lymphocyte-depleting uh, chemotherapy, uh, like you might do for a reduced-intensity transplanter for CAR T. Then they get their TILs, they get their stem cells back, or not their stem cells, their T cells back that have been expanded ex vivo. And then they're getting high-dose IL-2, 60,000 units per kg per dose every eight hours for up to 15 doses, all right? Now this is the standard uh, high dose IL-2 that was pioneered at the at the NCI National Cancer Institute at, at Bethesda that showed some folks had really durable long term responses with this, but not but it was not a ton of people, right? So these folks with melanoma they're not getting any melan um, melanoma benefit from the fludarabine and the cyclophosphamide. They are probably going to get some from the IL-2 regardless of the TILs, right? So this IL-2 response rate historically is, is less than 10%, right? But some of those folks had long-term responses. 
All right, so when we look at our progression-free survival, the IPI curve pretty much follows what we saw in the, in the IPI study before. Um, the hazard ratio for progression-free survival is 0.5, right? So like, that's pretty good, far away from 1.5. Confidence interval, 95% CI, 0.35 to 0.72. Pretty, pretty, great, pretty great benefit that we see here. Uh, if, you, if you care about median progression-free survival, you're talking for ipilimumab, you know, like less than two months compared to more than six months. Uh, these curves really separate uh, after three months, and, and they, they stay pretty wide for the duration of the study. At the time of publication, median follow-up is 33 months. And if you just drew a line at 33 months, right, half the people have been on study that long, half have not. So at 33 months... There are about 10% of people in the ipilimumab group. That's only three patients um, are uh, are still, you know, up to that point without uh, without disease uh, progression, uh, and it's 11 or 33% um, in in the uh, in the arm. So there is a definite tail, a plateau that we see in this tumoral infiltrating lymphocyte that is really promising. Now, in small numbers, only 11 people have been on study that long and not progressed to follow forward, but pretty striking separation of our progression-free survival curves. Uh, overall survival curves not presented, no difference in overall survival, numerically favoring the, the TILS treatment. If you look at response rate, if you care about response rate, um, complete response rate, 7% uh, with IPI to 20%, you're almost tripling complete response rate. <coughs> um, uh, overall response rate, 21% uh, with IPI to 49% with the TILS group. So pretty big improvement um, in, in response rate, progression-free survival. And you'd have to think if you had enough people, you would see an overall survival benefit as well. Of course, the one of the challenges of this, it's only at two centers. They say it's a multi-site study. It's a two-site study, okay? Um, you know, they, they enrolled 84. Only 80 actually got tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. Um, one patient had a late response to previous therapy. We know, like pembrolizumab, nivolumab, you can have late responses. Now, everyone in the IPI arm also had that. So just because somebody had a late response doesn't mean that you're seeing response from, from prior pembro in all these patients because they all got the same treatment in, in the control arm getting ipilimumab. Uh, one patient, only one had insufficient uh, expansion of tumor, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. One had rapid clinical progression. Again, you're taking T cells out. You have to grow them up. That's going to take some time. So these folks with really aggressive disease may not live long, long enough to benefit, similar to what we see in CAR-T. And then one patient had um, basically just decided they changed their mind due to patient decision. Um, you can guess the toxicity profiles are vastly different. You're getting chemo, and they report the toxicity from getting the lymphocyte-depleting chemo, IL-2. Um, I think the median number of doses of IL-2 uh, was four. <laughs> they were supposed to get 15. They only got four, uh, which is lower than maybe what's reported from the NIH, which is closer to seven or eight, I think. Um, so they're not in a ton of IL-2, um, and there are probably a lot of institutional knowledge that is required to safely and successfully administer such a high dose of IL-2. This is not something for your mom and pop uh, cancer center to do. You need to have experience doing IL-2 to consider doing this TLS or doing TIL therapy in, in studies. Um, the median duration of hospitalization for these folks, I had to hospitalize them. It's basically like a, like a, like a, like a transplant, like a bone marrow transplant, right? 
not transplanting bone marrow, but transplanting T cells. And because of the, the lymphocyte depleting chemo and the AL2, very, very high acuity care these folks uh, need. 17 days, median duration of hospitalization. So an expensive treatment um, for these folks. Um, you have to wonder if coupling this somehow with other T cell uh, checkpoint inhibiting therapy um, like ipilimumab and low dose, if that would be the next thing to do. But certainly very, very promising results here. It's taken a long time to show such, such promise compared to standard of care. I would imagine that some of this research uh, lost some steam in melanoma with ipilimumab and with our checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, really would like to, uh, hopeful that we see um, promising results in, in solid tumors as, as well. Um, and then figuring out, as I often say, who is most likely to benefit from such expensive and potentially toxic therapy. All right, so that's the big story. Till's going mainstream, which was an editorial in, uh, that accompanied the publication in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, Destiny Breast 03, trastuzumab deruxtecan versus trastuzumab mutanzine. Big study uh, presented at, uh, I think, ASCO last year, ESMO last year, was published in the New England Journal of Medicine this year. The, uh, the updated, there's an updated overall survival analysis that I'm pretty sure was presented at the San Antonio Breast Symposium or Breast Cancer Symposium and also published simultaneously, simultaneously in Lancet Oncology. At the original publication, I said, this is a massive progression-free survival, progression survival benefit with a hazard ratio of like 0.3. You got to think it's going to show overall survival benefit. The original publication, it didn't cross that pre-specified boundary. It has uh, with subsequent publication. The hazard ratio for overall survival did go from 0.55 to 0.64 with more follow-up. With even larger follow-up, maybe that the benefit goes away. There are some questions I have about the post-trial protocol people received in the trastuzumab and tansine arm. More than a third got trastuzumab, um, and many of them it was just single-agent trastuzumab, um, which is probably not going to do a whole lot to get into the study. You have had to already progressed or failed trastuzumab, so not a lot of you know, I, I'm, there's an overall survival benefit. I'm pretty confident here with TDXD compared to TDM1, but it may not be as large as we see. It's also notable that in the, in the original publication, 11% uh, of patients had interstitial lung disease or pneumonitis. With longer follow-up, that number is 15%. Uh, and I think in, in clinical practice, it's going to be north of that as well. And that's going to have a lot of implications for, uh, for monitoring our patients and safely delivering this drug. Um, and that could also negate some of the benefit, obviously, if fewer patients are able to tolerate it, you're not going to see as much benefit of the drug. But for those who do are able to tolerate it, they're going to benefit. And then can we predict who's going to have interstitial lung disease or pneumonitis? What are the risk factors and try to avoid the drug in those? That's the key thing, I think, going forward with uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan. All right, last update. We have an FDA approval for olutacidinib. Um, O-L-U-T-A-S-I-D-E-N-I-B, olutacidinib. This is an IDH1 um, inhibitor. Uh, it's FDA approved for relapsed refractory um, IDH1 mutated AML. We already have an IDH1 targeted agent, ivocidinib. It was originally approved for relapsed refractory AML. Now is approved first-line treatment for IDH1 mutated AML in conjunction with azacitine. This appears to be mostly a Me Too drug. When you look at the dangerous, you know, accelerated approval indications, and you just look at response rate, 
they seem comparable. When you look at toxicities, they, they have box warnings for differentiation syndrome, largely similar. There are some, a couple different big you know differences from uh, serious side effects. Uh, Olutacidinib has a, a specific warning about hepatotoxicity that ivocidinib does not. Ivocidinib has specific warnings about QT prolongation and Guillain-Barre syndrome. So, uh, so those may be the, the most notable differences. I will point out both of these drugs, although they're structurally not all that similar, uh, they are both three or four inducers. So we're going to have lots of potential drug-drug interactions with other drugs people are taking when they receive these drugs. Um, but, um, and again, that's an accelerated approval. So we'll see uh, how uh, future data hold out with that drug. But uh, it, certainly from what we know from ivocidinib, IDH1, uh, as a as a mutant is a is a an actual target AML uh, maybe in cholangio it, it's going to bear out even more uh, maybe in some types of brain tumors and other things and I would I would guess the olutacidinib uh, folks are going to look at getting approval an indication that ivocidinib does not um, would be uh, would be my guess if it actually has activity in other disease states uh, outside of cholangio okay. So that's what I have for this week. Uh, next week, we'll be back with something else. Uh, thank you so much for listening uh, and all the uh, uh, all the supports and likes and things like that. You can follow me on Twitter at PharmDeetNib, and you can follow both. Uh, you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. <laughs>